Having trouble staffing up? You're not alone. Our industry is facing an unprecedented labor shortage, and tech will play a central role in solving that problem. Yelp Kiosk was built in 2018 for restaurants who couldn't afford to pay a dedicated host. In 2021, Yelp Kiosk is supporting restaurants that want to do more with less. By adding Kiosk, your host is no longer trapped behind the host stand, enabling them to assist in all front-of-house operations. Learn more about how Kiosk can help your restaurant at restaurants.yelp.com forward slash kiosk. Now here we go. I've always realized that my job as a leader is to grow the confidence of my employees and the skills of my employees. And it's the more I grow each, the more the other leverages. So it's not like telling them what to do, it's just growing them all the time. Welcome to Full Comp, a show offering insight into the hospitality industry, featuring restaurateurs, thought leaders, and innovators. Served up on the house. Cameron Harold has helped to build three companies valued at $100 million each. His superpower is getting shit done. Cameron is an operator of the highest caliber and he's responsible for driving the growth of companies like 1-800-GOT-JUNK and entrepreneurs like Elon and Kimball Musk. In today's conversation, we define what operational excellence is, what it looks like in practical application, and how we can achieve it in our own restaurants. I was the dumb kid in high school, I was the dumb kid in university, but I figured out the cheat sheets, like in the back of the textbook were the answers, there were prior exams, the TAs would tell you what was on the exam. So I found the shortcuts. And then in business, I realized I was never gonna be smart enough to figure this out on my own. So I just did what the smart companies were doing. So if I read good to great, I just do everything in the book. Mm -hmm. And where I got trained was a company called College Pro Painters. I was a franchisee for College Pro when I was 20 years old. I was given a 300-page manual. I signed a 70-page franchise agreement. And I was so terrified of going broke that if it said a yellow keychain, it was a fucking yellow keychain. If it said, like, hire six people on Monday, I hired six. Like, I just did everything I was told. And then I was hyper-successful. So then I just did it again. I did it for three years and I was like knocking the cover off the ball. And then I started coaching their franchisees and I was so nervous again about screwing up. They just told them to do what was in the manual. And I said, if there's a better way, we'll tell you later. And it worked. So I became very formulaic. So I was very entrepreneurial with my ADD and bipolar, but I was very formulaic and kind of so scared of failing that I just did what the best were doing. So that playbook that they provided you with, is that the same playbook? high level that you use today? Yeah, like I trained Kimball Musk in 1993. Elon's brother worked for me in 93. His cousin, Peter Reeve, who built Solar City, also worked for me. I trained them how to run businesses. It's how we built 1-800-GOT-JUNK. It's how we built Gerber Auto Collision and Boyd Auto Body. Like each of the brands that I built, we followed the basic systems that worked at College Pro Painters. At College Pro, we had to hire 800 franchisees in four months and then train them to hire 8,000 painters in six weeks. And then we had 17 weeks to paint $64 million in houses. And then 8,800 people quit and went back to school. We got drunk. And on September 2nd, we did it again. I did that four years. I was in the top 30 people hiring 8,800 people a year. You became operationally world-class at operations, execution, recruiting, interviewing, selection, training, leadership development. So yeah, it was all around that. And then I've also worked really hard at growing people. Like I've always realized that my job as a leader is to grow the confidence of my employees and the skills of my employees. And it's the more I grow each, the more the other leverages. 
So it's not like telling them what to do. It's just growing them all the time. Now, if you hadn't ended up at the college paint pros, do you think that things would have turned out very differently? Or at that time in your life, were you actively looking for the system? No, I wasn't actively looking for the system, but I was already an entrepreneur. Like I'd already paid my way through first year university running my own business. I'd had a couple of other business ventures in high school. So I knew I would be entrepreneurial. I also knew that being an entrepreneur was about having the control of my time. It was about free time and then money would follow. In fact, it's been weird. The more free time I take, the more money I make because I end up delegating more and everything grows faster. So I don't think I was looking for the system, but I definitely would have followed the cheat sheets that were there before me. I remember early days reading What They Don't Teach You at Harvard mm -hmm. Business School by Mark McCormick and reading some stuff by Jack Welch and by Lee Iacocca and just like obsessed about some of their stuff around leadership and people. And so I was trying to follow what was there because it made sense to me intuitively. And I didn't understand like complex models and later when spreadsheets and stuff, I didn't understand all that stuff. I still don't understand balance sheets and all the ratios and stuff. I don't know anything about that. But I understand the basic connecting with the customer and obsessing about employees. That was something I learned very, very early on as well, that if you really, really obsess about your employees' satisfaction, they'll obsess about your customer satisfaction, and then you can charge whatever you want if your profit just comes in. But if you're so obsessed about the customer, your employees feel overworked. Your employees feel stressed. They feel like you don't care about them. So I flipped that from a very early days where my guys at College Pro and the women that work for me at College Pro Painters, they just knew that I actually gave a shit about them as employees. So they just worked really hard painting houses. As you were talking, I was like envisioning all of the people listening to this episode while they're driving, wrecking their cars when they heard you say that the less I work, the more money I make. I mean, especially when you consider the audience of restaurateurs, everybody's working 80 to 100 hours a week. And it's been the culture for ages. It would lead me to the next question, which is no one would argue the point that everyone needs a CEO. Everybody needs that visionary role that is not a luxury position. It is a necessity in a company. But I think a lot of folks, especially running like small independent businesses like independent restaurants, probably see that COO position that you advocate for as a luxury. And I'm wondering, when you don't have the money, how do you work that role into your business infrastructure? Well, the first thing I look at is if you don't have an executive assistant, you are one. So it's all about hiring an executive assistant, a personal assistant first to get all of your personal life administrative tasks off your plate to get like, don't cut your own lawn, don't do your own groceries, don't clean your own toilets, don't handle your own email, don't handle a lot of the minutes, like a lot of the minutiae in the business that we're good as an entrepreneur, because we've always done it, we can do it faster. Doing it faster is like the hamster on the treadmill or the fly trying to bang their head on the window, like it's not going to scale you. So some of the best restaurateurs like Jamie Oliver was one of my fans or like any of the multi-unit. Kimball Musk worked for me. Kimball owns a chain of restaurants right now. One of my old roommates in university went on to be an iron chef from Canada, Guy Rubino. Like they learned how to delegate and how to obsess about the critical few things. So they realized that maybe they didn't have to be the one going to the market to buy all the fruits and vegetables, but they had to train some people to see what they saw, to buy the quality that they found, to know the shops. But at some point they're like, I can't go grocery shopping every day or I can't set my own tables, but I need the tables to be set properly with the knife facing in and the tines facing this way. And like you need to be able to set the table properly so that it looks perfect. But you train people to do that. You don't go out there and set every single table every single night. Like 
So you start by delegating all of the minimum wage jobs. Then you start by delegating all the jobs that drain you of energy. You might be really good at it, but you just don't love doing it. So that you're left with the critical few things. And because you're only working on stuff that gives you energy, you end up feeding your company with positive energy again. It's like quantum mechanics. Because you're only doing the stuff that makes you feel good and energized, you feed everybody. And there's restaurateurs or small business owners who find a way to delegate everything except genius, and they show up for those few hours. Is there a playbook for that? I mean, is there a step-by-step? How did you learn how to do that? I mean, as you say it, no argument, like, sounds great, sign me up, but are there tools or resources to figure out? I think it's that when I was 16, my dad took me to our golf club. And we went at one o'clock or 12 o'clock to play golf. And we sat on the balcony before we're going out to play. And he showed me all the people walking in. He's like, she owns a clothing store. He owns a car dealership. He owns an advertising agency. And then we went and played golf. And we came back and it was like five o'clock. And I'm eating my fries and gravy and drinking my cherry Coke. And he's showing me all the people coming in at five o'clock to play golf. And he said, that guy works at a car dealership. She works at a law firm. He works at an accounting firm. He said, do you know the difference? And I said, yeah, if you're an employee, you play golf from five o'clock on. If you're an owner, you can play golf whenever you want. And my dad said, the key is you have to be able to have other people running the business for you so that you can have your time. So I became very cognizant at a very early age that I could paint houses, but I didn't want to. It drained me of energy. So in the middle of the day, when my painters were painting houses, I'd go windsurfing, I'd go golfing, I'd play tennis. For about four hours in the middle of every day, I just literally unplugged. But man, I worked freaking hard from seven in the morning until 12. And I worked really hard from four until seven doing estimates. But then I didn't do all the, I didn't just work, 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 work. Because again, it's like that fly going out the window. There's an easier way. So it's just by being a little bit lazy, maybe, and by really valuing my free time. And then by realizing later on, this probably only came to me about four or five years ago, but none of this actually matters. Like we're all going to die. We're all just walking each other home. Like, this is just what we do to make money. So we need that hobbies and passions and fun. Like, we really do need to be able to unplug and have a good time. Otherwise, what are we doing this for? I couldn't agree with you more. And I think that was one of the things that was really highlighted through the pandemic. Are there other fundamental or operational mistakes that you see entrepreneurs making? Yeah, the inability to focus where everything is important. And the reality is not everything is important where we tend to work on a lot of the busy work versus the really high impact work. So when we were building 1-800-GOT-JUNK, we found three core things to obsess about. One was turning our company into a cult. So building something a little bit more than a business, a little bit less than a religion to give them that zone of a culture. And then the second was a way to actually leverage PR. So the more press we got about our brand, the more press we would get about our brand. And then the third was to charge a 40% premium over everybody else in the marketplace so that we could pay our franchisees well, we could pay our employees well, we could have better branding and better marketing. So we became the Starbucks of of junk removal or the FedEx of junk removal. And we just found ways to drive those three things. And then everything else just kind of happened. We didn't worry about like how perfect our IT could be or how perfect our story. Like we always worked on it, but we obsessed about those three. And I think if we think about light, if you turn on a light bulb, it's dispersed and it lights up a room. But if you highly concentrate and highly focus light, it becomes a laser and it can cut through steel. So it's how focused are your employees? How focused is your marketing? How focused are you with your time? I was talking to a restaurateur in 2008, 2009 during the global financial crisis, and he was panicking because his restaurant chain, the Cactus Club in Vancouver, was really struggling. And I said, well, 
stop reading the fucking newspaper about how bad the global financial crisis is. You only have seven locations. Why don't you get all your employees to do marketing in the three square blocks around all your locations and tell everybody how great your food is? And so they did and they became massively successful because they just focused. Don't worry about the stuff like control the controllables, right? Now, in terms of figuring out what those three things are for each business, because I'm sure they're different for each business, is there a process that you would use to distill out what those three, we'll call them market drivers, would be? Yeah, we looked at Jim Collins' flywheel, and we found out the idea with the flywheel was the thing that if you focused on it and pushed on it and pushed on it, it would gain momentum. So we realized at College Pro Painters that it was easy to get free press coverage And then I thought at 1-800-GOT-JUNK, if I could teach all the franchisees how to get press coverage, that would help us get more press coverage. And we didn't have any money for marketing or advertising, so contacting the media, like, we just found the things that were easy. The other way to decide is to look for what I call the low-hanging fruit. If you think that every business only has three inputs, we have our people, we have time, like days and weeks and months in front of us, and we have money. And the key is to get, how do I get the highest return on investment for those three inputs? So how do I do projects that are easy to do, that are quick to do, that don't cost a lot of money because the momentum creates momentum? And then we've recently been hearing about this term called minimum viable product. I've always called it minimum viable everything. Like just get it done and get it out the door. Like at university, it was 5-0 and go. It was like, give me a passing grade and get me out of this course because that will get me my degree and no one's ever going to ask for my grades. So that for me is a key one is just momentum creating momentum and a bunch of solid B minuses. I love that. I do another show called Restaurant Marketing School. And one of the upcoming guests on that show, a marketing expert by the name of Matt Platt, he sent me like a t-shirt and a hat and this and that. But one of the things in there was this document that says, this is my vivid vision. Hold on one second. I'm going to grab it. Yeah, yeah, please. Can you see that? That's amazing. That's amazing, right? It's amazing. It's a four-page document where he lays everything out. And that is your brainchild. Well, it's an idea that I learned from an Olympic coach. And I finally got the trademark. Vivid Vision is a registered trademark as of about three weeks ago. It's been the missing tool in business that most entrepreneurs have got an idea. Like, let's say you're a restaurateur. I know what I want my customers to experience. I know what I want the food to look like. I know what I want the food to taste like. I know what I want the reviews to be written like. I know what my employees to write on Glassdoor and Indeed. I've got it all swirling around in my head, but it's hard for me to articulate it, but it's really fucking clear in my mind. The vivid vision idea is to take everything out of your mind and write it down as if it's already come true. You describe what it feels like walking into the restaurant and hearing the music and being greeted at the door and being seated and smelling the aromas and hearing the chatter and and watching the interactions with the chefs and sitting at the chef's table. Like you describe it all and without knowing how it's going to happen. And when you do that, and then you just show that to all of your employees, your suppliers, your customers, they understand, right? So if they're now helping you design your interior of your restaurant, they know what you're looking for. They don't bring you the wrong linens. They know that you want black linens because, you know, like they get it, right? But if you don't get it out of your mind, if all you say is we're going to have a really great Mexican fusion restaurant, it's not enough. There's not enough there. I was blown away. So this friend of mine, Guy Rubino, who was on Iron Chef, he owned a uh-huh, company uh-huh. called Rain in Toronto, had a TV show called Made to Order. I went into Guy's home one day and he was showing me drawings. He'd never been trained as a chef. He had these beautiful drawings that he'd hand sketched of what his food was going to look like plated with like diagrams and like explaining stuff. I'm like, dude, this is like a fucking architectural drawing. He's like, well, yeah, have you seen my food? He had a vision 
for what it was going to look like plated. And then he could describe that to all of the roles in the kitchen. So when they did it, it literally recreated his vision. That's the power of articulating that vivid vision is everyone can read your mind. So I would argue that for many people, myself included, until I actually did it, is writing it all out, right? Because once you put your dreams on paper, it's real. And I think a lot of people, myself included for a long time, were really afraid to take that step. But as it turns out, based on your teachings, that's not even the terrifying part. The terrifying part is you then have to share it with everyone, everyone that is willing to listen. And the reality is it scares the shit out of them because they think you're crazy. Because all they can see is today, right? You've now rolled out three years into the future, describing the future, and all they can see is today, and they think you've literally lost your mind. So it takes a while for them to catch up to you. It takes a while for them to see certain sentences coming true, much like building a home. I can talk about how beautiful my home is going to look, but for the first three weeks we go to the property, it's just this bulldozed piece of land. And then the foundation is getting poured, and that takes six weeks. It's like, if I'm describing this beautiful home, you're looking at me going, dude, it's just the foundation. And then the walls go up. You're like, whoa, like you start seeing it happen, right? That's how the vivid vision starts to unfold is some parts of it come true in the third year, some in the second year, some in the first year. And you start to see it kind of take shape. And that's when, the, when you really get, I think, the engagement and excitement too. What do potential customers see when they go to your website? People eat with their eyes, and our website's menu is the best opportunity to turn page views into paying guests. That's why I'm so happy to introduce PopMenu, the restaurant tool that turns more first-time guests into regulars. PopMenu is the secret weapon of some of the best restaurant owners and operators in the industry. It's a full digital solution, creating dynamic, interactive menus that hook your customers from the start with a mobile-friendly design. PopMenu gives us all the tools we need and puts the focus back on what matters most, our customers and our cuisine. With the changing landscape of our industry, we need tools that can serve the evolving needs of our restaurants. PopMenu can take your business to the next level. For a limited time only, get $100 off your first month. Plus, you lock in one unchanging monthly rate. Go to popmenu.com slash full comp. That's $100 off your first month at popmenu.com slash fullcom. Speaking only for my industry, I would say that the most successful brands out there, it is this COO or CEO COO pairing, right? It's Danny Meyer is enthused with culinary, but doesn't delve into it. And you see that Mario Batali with Joe Bastianich, and there are all of these beautiful relationships that create these amazing businesses together. How do you think, for those out there that are like solopreneurs, is I think what they're called, that are out there and they're the executive chef and they're the business owner and they're doing it all, how do you find that kindred spirit? Yeah, great question. I forgot to answer that component of it. So once you realize that you've delegated all the administrative stuff to your team and to your assistant, and now you're left with delegating some big stuff, some bigger projects that really truly needs a partner, a COO or a VP of operations or a general manager, the first thing to look for is absolute, complete trust in that individual, which means in the interview process, you have to really grill them so that you know everything about them before they even show up. You know, somebody once said to me, it takes about 90 days to know if you've got the right employee. And I said, that's because you suck at interviewing. Like if you do the right, <laughs> right, it'd be like saying, I don't know until nine months after dating somebody, if I really like them. Well, that's because you should have been doing more at the beginning. 
That's why you have sex before marriage. It's stupid to wait. This would be a disaster zone. So the first one is complete implicit trust that you're willing to give them your bank account and your passwords, let them take care of your kids. Like you know so much about and them about you, right? Second thing is a really strong culture fit that you have to just really like them. Date night with them is not going to be a hard thing. Going and hanging out, going golfing, going for runs shouldn't be a problem. It's just because you like them and you connect with them. And the third part is they have to be really good at all the stuff you suck at. And they have to want to work on all the stuff that you suck at. And they have to not want to get involved on the stuff that you want to do. So it's a very much a divide and conquer. I love cooking. Like I obsess about cooking. I've taken nine night French culinary courses. I'm heading to Tuscany in September to do some cooking over there. I really love cooking. My girlfriend hates cooking. Can't stand it. She loves cleaning. Like she will clean all day long, but she just can't. But I would I go to the market. I can plan the menu. I can mise en place. I love it. So we've decided to divide and conquer. There's other parts now. I don't like doing laundry, but I love folding laundry. There's something really feels good about folding laundry, but I don't like putting it in the washing machine. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. In the restaurant, it's the same thing. It's maybe I love sales and marketing. Maybe I don't. Some COOs, they run sales and marketing. Some don't. Some COOs run engineering. Some don't. At 1-800-GOT-JUNK, I ran everything except IT and finance. I've got members of the COO Alliance who all run finance, and I didn't like it or understand it. I ran marketing, I did sales, I ran PR, I ran the call center, I did franchise sales, I ran corporate operations, I did all the stuff that I liked, and then I avoided all the stuff I didn't. And then Brian and I, he was my best man at my wedding three months before I started working for him. We were best friends. So we knew everything about him before I even started, and he'd seen me build two companies already. We were in an EO forum group together for five years. He watched me build two other companies. He knew I could do what, what he needed, and I knew he couldn't do anything I was teaching him. But he had an amazing idea, and it was just like, okay, let me do this, you do that. We'd meet up at the end of the day and go for a run or hang out or go get drunk together, and it was literally like a yin and yang partnership. So that's what you look for, the trust, the core, the culture fit, and the skills. You've grown three companies to over $100 million in revenue. In your experience, what's the rocket fuel that really enables a business to scale? I think it's talked about a lot that culture trumps strategy, right? That culture is more important, but culture is not the free massages and the free lunches and the perks. Culture is alignment with vision, firing the assholes, only hiring team players, only like growing them, investing in their skill set. Like culture is about all that. And when you obsess about your employee engagement, they'll take care of your customers. So for me, my number one metric in the company is my employee net promoter score. My second one is my customer net promoter score. My third is dollars in profit. And my fourth is dollars in revenue. But when I obsess about the employee engagement, they go through brick walls for my customers. But if I'm obsessed about my customers, my employees always feel overworked. They feel underappreciated. They feel stressed. But if they know I care about them, so that for me is always that rocket fuel there is that just the complete obsession about them. I've got employees that work for me now and my team. One of them said, hey, can I go live in Europe for a bit? I'm like, go. He's like, wow, really? I'm like, go, go figure it out. This was before COVID. Another one, I sent her and her family of five on vacation. I just bought them a cruise to Mexico and sent them off on vacation. Another one was having trouble with a car. So I just gave him a down payment for a car and said, like, you can't have three kids under four and have a car breaking down. He started crying on a Zoom call. It's like three grand to me. It's a rounding error. He's been with me for four years. So those little things, I think, are the big ones, right? Another one, I don't think any entrepreneur works hard enough to praise or thank our employees. We would tell our loved one, our partner, oh, I love you. You're amazing. Thank you. We tell our lovers every day how much we love them. 
And then we were like, oh, my employees know. No, they fucking forgot because it was seven months ago. And all you've told them is the 87 other things we need to work on or improve or grow or fix. You need to be telling your employees constantly that you love them and thank you and praising them and specific things. And I don't think any entrepreneurs work hard enough on that. Well, I think it speaks to the labor crisis we find ourselves in. I mean, obviously, it's hit the hospitality industry really hard. But generally, there's been this mass exodus from the labor market. And I think that people are really trying to figure out what next steps are. And as someone that has run many companies and as someone that mentors other COOs, I'm wondering if someone tasked you with luring talent in this competitive market, what would your strategy be? I would fire 10% of my employees right now, the bottom 10. Like my A players are my racehorses, my B players are the workhorses, C players have to go to the glue factory. I'd fire my C players. I would take the money and put it towards my A players and B players. I'd pay them more. I'd train them. I'd give them skills. I'd praise them. I'd thank them. I'd obsess about those two groups, the workhorses and the racehorses, and they'd go through brick walls for me. It's like a hockey team. You can play shorthanded and still score goals because there's less people in your way. So I would really just obsess about them. And the other part is that I think most entrepreneurs, again, don't praise and thank and show gratitude with their employees because we're always driving to that horizon, right? We're pushing to the next goal. We notice all the stuff that's broken. We're frustrated with things we want fixed. That's cool. But obsess about all the other stuff as well, the gratitude and the thank you, because if you infuse everybody with energy, they'll take care of the other stuff with much more happiness, right? I couldn't agree with you more. I also think there's something to be said for being a better leader. And for me, and I bring this up because this does fall within your sphere of genius. Meetings have always been an issue for me. I've done long, I've done short, I've done sitting, I've done standing, I've done virtual, I've done mandatory, I've done optional. I've done it all. And at the end of the day, there are probably a handful of meetings that I have led or participated in that I didn't see that I was wasting people's time in some form or fashion. And it's super frustrating, right? Because you want to get what you want out of it. Everyone agrees that like meetings are important, but like the title of your book, they do suck. Well, Elon Musk sent a tweet out uh, about a year and a half ago. I was a reference for Elon in his very first round of funding in January of 95 for Zip2. He and his brother had one employee. So I've known them for a long time. And he said in his tweet, if you're in a shitty meeting, stand up and leave the meeting. So I sent him a text message. I'm like, no fix the meetings and they won't be in the shitty meetings in the first place, like fix the root cause. So most employees have never been trained on how to run a meeting. And most employees have never been trained on how to attend and participate in a meeting. But if you train them on those basics, meetings won't suck. We would never send our kid off to Little League Baseball without teaching him how to hold the bat and catch the ball and throw a ball. We teach them the basics. Otherwise, Johnny would come home and go, baseball sucks. Like, no, Johnny, you suck at baseball. <laughs> it's like, but it's also the same as interviewing. Like, have we trained all of our managers on how to do a proper job interview? Have we trained them on how to do email management? Have we trained them in conflict management? Have we trained them in coaching and delegation? So we most often never train our teams on how to lead people. Again, if you think about the restaurant, we teach them how to plate food. We teach them how to buy food. We teach them how to cook the food. But do we teach them how to treat each other? Do we teach them how to coach a team? Do we teach them how to cheer people on? Do we teach them how to run a staff meeting to get energy in the group before the diners show up? No, we obsess about what we do and we forget to teach people on the how we do, right? And I launched a course called Invest in Your Leaders just for that purpose to actually give all managers and leaders the core skills that they need to really grow their company. That's how we built College Pro Painters. 
we would take 800 university students and in two months train them how to run their own company. And then in six weeks, they'd go out and hire 8,000 people. So they'd hire 10 people each and literally run a business. We had to train them on how to be leaders, coaching, delegation, time management, product, like those core skills. And I think, again, without those core skills, yeah, business is difficult. You've had a lot of ups and downs throughout your career and your life. What are the most effective ways you found to manage stress and create balance? I had to learn from failure. I was written up in the Wall Street Journal 20 years ago as one of four supernovas whose careers went really high and flamed out with stress. I was clinically redlining and had a nervous breakdown when I was 35. I was working across the street from my office. I was drinking every night. I wasn't getting exercise. I weighed 37 pounds heavier than I do today. I just was a complete and utter stress case and didn't know it. I thought I was fine. So it's getting exercise, it's putting priorities in place for your health, it's eating healthier, it's, I have a sign beside my wine rack, I love wine, I have a sign beside my wine rack that says, did you work out today? <laughs> I'm not allowed to open a bottle of wine unless I got a workout in. I used to just like, I'd open the wine, right? And then I'd have Grand Marnier, and then I'd, and I, I used to smoke, and I didn't get exercise, and I didn't take vacations. Now I obsess about all that stuff. And I think entrepreneurs... No one is ever going to praise the entrepreneur for working so hard. No one's ever going to praise going, good job working so hard, Mr. Restaurant. Or no one's ever going to say that. They're also never going to criticize you for taking vacation. More often than not, they'd rather you leave and let them run the business anyway because you're stressful around them because you're always driving and not praising them enough, right? Yeah, that totally resonates. And then I want to get back to delegation for a minute because, again, I think it's probably the single greatest asset that is underutilized in our industry. Any books on delegation? I give you a crash course on it that's really simple. And this is what we need. It's one of the modules in my Invest in Your Leaders course is delegation because we need to train people on how to delegate. Again, most people have never been trained. The onus is on the receiver. If you're delegating something, it's your responsibility to get back what you want to get back. So that means explaining to the person you're delegating to what complete looks like, what finished looks like. That's step one. It also means you have to control Parkinson's law. Parkinson's law says that work expands to fill the space that we give it. So if I said to my two kids, I need you to clean the house, it'll only take you an hour. They'd be like, no, it'll take us all day. We got to wash the floors. Or if I said, I need you to clean the house. I got six people coming for dinner in 30 minutes. I need you to clean it as fast as possible. Be done in 29. They'd be done in 29. Because I've given them a smaller container and said, do as best as you can as fast as possible or best you can in 30 minutes. So when you delegate a project, tell people how little time you want them to spend and tell people how little money you want them to spend. I could say to my assistant, hey, I'm having dinner with Joshua who's going to be in town. Book a dinner for Josh and I. We're going to have a good dinner and talk about work. She could book the best restaurant in Scottsdale and we go off and we have like an amazing dinner at Fat Ox and we get served personally by the owner. We got a bottle of wine being decanted. What I actually meant was Meredith, Joshua and I are going to be sitting at my office. Can you get like some Uber Eats and we'll get Flower Child delivered and keep it under 60 bucks? <laughs> yeah. She spends 800. I only wanted her to spend 60. It took four hours. I only wanted 30 minutes, but it's not her fault. I said, book a really good dinner so we can talk about business. I didn't delegate. It's a 30 minute dinner at my office. Great, clean food. No more than 60 bucks. Done. Simple. So as an entrepreneur, we need to delegate that way more. The third part is we need to make sure that when we delegate, the person we're delegating to has the skills to do what we're, we're asking them to do, right? And that they want to do what we're asking them to do. So it's applying situational leadership, which is another one of the modules I cover off. It's applying situational leadership to know how to coach them 
based on their skill level and commitment level. That's it. That's all delegation is. This is an industry podcast, and at the end of every episode, I like to give the guests an opportunity to speak directly to the audience. There are thousands of restaurant owners and operators listening, and I'm wondering, do you have any words of advice or encouragement you'd like to offer? I'm a crazy big foodie. Like, I love restaurants. We always do, like, a Michelin star restaurant in every city around the world. We go to at least one, and then we go to, like, the real kind of back alley restaurants. One of my favorite restaurants was in Australia, and it was called the Italian Waiters Club. And it was a restaurant where all the waiters would go in between their shifts to eat. And this Italian family would serve the food. But the connection was with the aunt or the grandmother. She would come to the table and she would sit and talk to you. And meanwhile, I'm drinking wine out of a coffee cup. The other guy's drinking out of a juice glass. Like the place was in pretty, not shambles, but it was like, you have a spoon, you have a fork. What else do you need? But how is the food? <laughs> and the food was amazing. And the connection with her was amazing. It's like, how's your shift? And how's your boss at that restaurant? And it was the connection with the customer that made the experience so perfect. And I think as owners, we need to remember that we need to connect with our customer. And it's not the walk by, how's your food as you're going to the next table and you don't actually give a shit. It's actually coming out to the table. And like, I've had an executive chef at a restaurant in Toronto do this one time where he walked out and, no, I'll tell you one of the Ritz Carlton. This guy came out and we wanted to have s'mores and he's like, well, we don't really have s'mores, but tell you what, I'll meet you back at your casita in an hour. We go back to the casita, he's built a bonfire Custom brought some stuff for us to make s'mores, brought a champagne bucket and champagne for us, and he hung out with us, smoked a joint, drank champagne, and made <laughs> s'mores for us. And he's the executive chef at the Ritz-Carlton Dove Mountain in Tucson. I found out a month later that was the number one Ritz-Carlton chain in the brand, and he was rated the number one employee there. That's an employee who understood the connection to the customer mm -hmm. was what the whole experience. And I've talked about that restaurant and that experience so many times because of that one chef, right? I think that's what you need as a restaurateur is to really, really connect, right? Go at College Pro Painters, we talked about getting your hand in the paint can, like just get into the business with the customer. That's Cameron Harold. For more on Cameron, go to CameronHerald.com. If you want to tell us your story, hear previous episodes or check out our other content, go to restaurants.yelp.com forward slash full comp. Thank you so much for listening to the show. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, please leave us a review. A special thanks to Yelp for helping us spread the word to the whole hospitality community. I'm Josh Kopel. You've been listening to Full Comp.